Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I hear them chat from the noise. Move too quick, can't stop for the talking. I hear them chat with the boys. Man's so tough, but man's keep walking. Welcome to Cancer Now. Gary Jupin. Done. Very good eyes, eh? Thanks for having me on. <laughs> welcome to the uh, welcome to the studio here. Now, uh, for regular listeners, uh, Bluey is not here. He is building scaffold somewhere. It's one of these very uh, few and far between dry days uh, here in in Newcastle. So he's building scaff out there with all the kiwis. Oh, so that's good. Sh- shout out the Bluey. <laughs> good on you, Blue. <laughs> Enjoy you, yourself, Blue. mate. Where would we be without scaffolders? I know. Well, hey, you know the yeah. unsung heroes. And, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, if you don't know Gary Jubilant, Australia's most decorated detective, perhaps. I don't know about decorated. <laughs> uh, Infamous. Uh, Do they get decorated? You get decorations, but uh, I've, I've never been a big one for the decorations. Well, in my eyes, you're the most decorated. I got uh, I got runner-up of uh, for the uh, Policeman of the Year Award one time. That's good. But there had never been a runner-up before. You're either the Policeman of the Year or not Policeman of the Year. And I got a call from uh, a senior police officer and said... Uh, Congratulations. And uh, I, I didn't even know about the award. He said, uh, you're um, runner-up to Policeman of the Year. And I've gone, oh, that's that's good. Well, thank you. And uh, who won? And uh, he was a little bit hesitant to say that. And uh, he just said, oh, some young bloke, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was a uh, detective at that stage working a lot of major crime. And it was uh, a person that worked for the transit police who had given out a lot of tickets. <laughs> The person from the transit police won over a detective. Yeah, and look, I'm not diminishing. No, I think you should. I think you should diminish the transit police. No, no. Everyone, everyone plays an important role, but it was a bizarre. Yeah, like Bluey with the scaffold. Bluey with the, Bluey, he could be the scaffold of the year. Maybe. Scaffolder of the year. But um, it was a strange situation. So I rang, uh, rang someone uh, you know, higher up and said, what's the go with the runner-up? Because you, you can't be sort of the second best. It's mm. either the police officer of the year. There is no runner-up. There never has been a runner-up or whatever. And I don't know, it just got lost in the uh, the history of the New South Wales police and it's still to this day I didn't know why I got runner-up and there's never been a runner-up policeman of the year since mm. and uh, there wasn't one before. I got a little TV. A you got prize. a telly? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, nice. I, I, on, on principle I wasn't going to accept the prize and they said, oh, it's a nice TV. I okay. said, okay. Well. No, well, the New South Wales Police, you know, great organisation. They've done well. <laughs> um, on the topic of crime, I wanted to show you this. This is a very special clock that I bought, uh, not just right. for you. I bought it just because I'm a weird person and I like buying <laughs> thank, thank interesting you. things. And it's not a gift either. Oh, I'm keeping oh, this. Uh, but I thought you might want to just have a look at it and get what type of um, feelings do you get from this particular clock? Well, I, I'm just checking about the uh, fingerprints because I've got the fingerprints uh, all over it now. But uh, Chappelle. Chappelle. What do, you, what do you think when you hear the name Chappelle? I'm thinking, I'm thinking of... Boogie board? You are correct. <laughs> I'm thinking this uh, was made by Australia's biggest ever drug smuggler, Chappelle Corby. Wow, was it gift wrapped? 
Was it wrapped uh, in the? It was not wrapped. Oh no, it was wrapped. It was sent in a very nice box. I'm just, she wrote I'm, some nice little words I'm just on the checking. back. Oh, that's nice. That's Isn't that cool? Yeah. So that's where she's doing. Yeah. That's what she's doing now. No, well, good luck to her. Like whatever happened, whatever you know, people's views on it. Uh, she went through a rough time, and I, I don't, uh, yeah. Spending time in the prison like she did would have been a uh, a, a tough uh, in a Balinese prison as a young person. I think she would only have been in her early twenties, wouldn't she? Yeah, and and the attention on her as well. Mm. Like I, I, I'm not judging on what she was convicted of or the nature of the the offence, but uh, yeah, she she's paid pay the price. So hopefully, uh, hopefully life's good for her. I did I didn't bring a gift, but <laughs> you meant to. No, this is not All a right. gift for you. This is no. not a gift. You're not, <laughs> no, not giving it to no, you. No, but Chappelle bought the gift. No, she hasn't been on the show. I bought oh, this. Right. It was 200 bucks. Oh, Jesus. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I've got it. You can take it if you want, but I, need, I will buy a new one. Need a new watch. No, that's uh, that's very good. Very good. Now, you um you you cancelled on me last week. Yes. You had COVID again. Yeah. I'm uh, 10 days clean. Nice. Very good. <laughs> yeah. You're getting it out of your system. I, it was funny getting uh, COVID at this stage because it was such a yesterday's sort of- No one cares. No one cares. It's been done. Like if you had COVID two years ago, everyone's going, oh, Isaac, oh. he's got COVID. Oh. And I'd be go, I'd be telling people I've got COVID and they go, oh, yeah. What what else is going so, on? <laughs> yeah. We had this conversation, Claire and I, yesterday of the time we were out the front, like for a couple of weeks there, talking to our neighbours, but with like a ten metres distance in between each other because we didn't yeah. want to get arrested or fined. Yeah. Or whatever. Oh, it was strange. It's stuff. changed. Yeah. How was it for you? It was fine. Uh, I, I was crook for a couple of days, but if it didn't have the word COVID attached to it, I would have thought I had a yeah man cold. Yeah. And uh, I, I probably would have bounced back. But uh, yeah, it's uh, okay. I know everyone it affects everyone differently, but. Uh, yeah, I feel all right. It yeah. made me uh, uh, slow down and uh, lock myself away for a week, so that right. was pretty good. Well, there's still. I was talking to a friend of mine who has he's not vaccinated, and he yeah. uh, travels to America or did travel to America quite a bit for work, yeah. uh, and he is still unable to travel. Yeah. Uh, even though I only had two jabs, the yeah. last one being in probably September last year or thereabouts. Yeah. And they say that the vaccination only lasts six months. Yeah. I I would imagine that I am completely unprotected by those means and yet he still can't travel because he hasn't had something 12 months ago yeah it's it's very strange it is is strange i i travel overseas since covid i went to went to the maldives and uh we were worried whether you're going to get through this checkpoint or that checkpoint but it seemed fairly relaxed Mm. Uh, yeah you wear the mask on the plane and uh and different things but uh yeah i i hope we're over the worst of it, and yeah, yeah sure. That, that's what the so-called experts are saying that uh, yeah, we've hit hit the peak. So hopefully. I caught the flu this year; it was horrible. I thought I was going to die. It was te- it was so bad. <laughs> Look, I can sympathise. Oh, that that mate, man, man flu is worse. It's terrible. Yeah. I was like, we had to get to the airport. I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make this. This is this is awful. But I lived. Well, I uh, I haven't been as sick as I've been in the last twelve months, and I wonder if it's because we live such a sterile existence in mm. the COVID, wash your hands and, and you know, not coming into contact. But uh, before I went over the Maldives, the day before, I got uh, I got sick and I was on an island and if you had a temperature, you get put into isolation and oh, all no. that. So there was a couple of days I was walking around with my uh, – I went over there with a group of uh, mates and uh, doing a bit of uh, surfing and uh, 
was walking around like weekend at Bernie's because we had to pretend I was all right. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't <laughs> Just want, smile on your face. Yeah. No, I'm fine because we didn't want uh, anyone to know I was sick. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't want to be in another country that's sort of still freaking out about that. Yeah. Yeah. When, when COVID first hit, I remember we spoke on the phone and you had been in lockdown in your apartment for oh, six yeah. months or something. Yeah. You couldn't get out. There was, it was like a prison. Bouncing off the walls. And I, I, I think I said to you back then, I realized how boring I actually was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like living with myself. What are we doing? the day gary i'm not sure did you get a lot of work done then because you are releasing a new book it comes out in september is that yeah, correct yeah so yeah. badness badness that, that's correct um yeah i i it sort of forces you to do work but you also fall into the trap i think that well if i don't do it today i can do it tomorrow because every day blends into mm. it but uh no i finished the book it's at the printers now and uh, i wrote it co-wrote it with uh dan box who's based over in uh over in london so there was a lot of late night calls and and toing and froing but uh after i finished the first book i said i'd never do it again and after i finished the second book <laughs> i'll never do it again right it's um i enjoy it it's cathartic like putting every everything down this book's a little bit different because it's not um my first one i catch killers was a memoir so that's sort of the story rate itself this one's a continuation of my journey since i left left the cop so it's now been 3 years or a bit over uh, 3 years i think and what i've discovered since then so speaking to not just um, the people I have on the, the podcast that I do, like other other cops, but speaking to some of the uh, ex-crooks or current crooks and uh, just getting a real insight into uh, what causes uh, them to go into a life of crime. And I, I found it quite interesting. But the really, um, what I think, and it's the thing that rocks my boat at the moment, is how people are fighting crime in different ways, not from a policing point of view, but people are doing uh, like one, uh, Ken Marslu whose son was killed um, in an armed robbery. He's got this program called Enough is Enough and it's about reducing violence. Um, uh, Voices Survivor, Russell Manser, um, an armed robber, uh, escapee, all sorts of things, spent 23 years in jail. He was sexually assaulted when he was a kid in an institution and, and that, you know, not, he's not blaming everything for his life, but that set him on a path that uh, you know, just, um, led to spending so much time in jail. And then there's another fellow, uh, Shane Phillips, uh, an Aboriginal man at Redfern, and he does a boxing tribal warrior and clean slate program where he gets uh, the Indigenous kids out boxing in the morning and different things like that. And it's made me think, here I was thinking I'm the hard-ass crime fighter all those years in the cops, and really when it's all said and done, the, the difference these people are making doing programs like that is bigger than what I ever achieved in uh, in police. So I, I'm, I'm really finding that interesting. It's just changed my view. I'm looking at life a little bit differently, not through a cop's eyes. Mm. So yeah. So what, what can people take away from, from this book, do you think? What is, what is your goal from it? Uh, well, it, it's interesting you, you say that because when it was put to us about doing it or put to me about doing a second book and I, I spoke to Dan about it and, you know, we, we could put my name on it and we could there and just sort of sell out and yeah. nothing proud of because you've got to do the, the you know, tour, the book tour and talk about the book. But this, I think, has really given – we're trying to understand badness, what causes badness. Yeah, we, we delve into some of the, some of the big crimes, um, Anita Cobby – an unsolved murder that I did uh, when I was in the uh, in the police where, um, where a young girl was uh, murdered, 13-year-old girl, and different things like that. And we're looking at, okay, what causes these crimes? Looking at uh, Martin Bryant, we um, spoke to the crime scene officer that was oh, down really? there um, and looking at the carnage that uh, occurred down there. 
And then uh, Tim Watson Munro, uh, who um, the Hoddle Street Massacre. Tim Watson Munro didn't do the Hoddle Street uh, ma- Massacre. That was Julian Knight. Tim Watson Munro is a criminal psychologist and he was uh, working with Julian Knight. And it's interesting. You see that tipping point where people, uh, yeah, it's almost like you look at it and when you look back, it's almost like it's inevitable. So that's sort of the journey that the book covers. This is a long answer to a short question. But then I'm looking at the other people that are fighting crime, victims and how they've been touched by crime and just different ways what happens in, in prison. I became really good friends with an interesting character and sadly he's pa- passed away, that's uh, Bernie Matthews. And uh, Bernie Matthews uh, was one of the hardest prisoners in, um, in New South Wales. He, was, you know, he had a book came out, Mr Intractable, because he was put up in uh, Grafton where some horrendous things happened to them. And uh, I'm not excusing the crimes that Bernie committed, but I became good friends with him and um, before he passed away. And uh, his childhood and the brutality that he suffered in the, in the prisons um, at Grafton where they, they'd get bashed when they came in, and this is not talking out of school, this is all public, public record. And you can almost look at it and think, okay, why did this person go, go that bad? And then he was talking about all the other people he served time with. And, uh, you know, Bernie got the, he was the longest serving prisoner in Katingle, um, which was a supermax. And, uh, yeah, he went through some tough times. And, uh, you know, he would be hard to handle. At one point, he tried to uh, kill a uh, corrective services officer by biting his neck. Like, yeah. You know, Shit. Yeah. You know, like, uh, uh, that's how violent he could be. But when you break it down, there was. He was a really smart person. He was a good journalist. So he was all he was mentoring me in some of the journalistic work because he's an award-winning journalist when he had been out of prison. Really? Yeah. So wow. I I found hanging out with people like that, and one of the guests that uh, you've had mm. uh, had on your podcast, uh, Graham Henry. I've got to know him pretty well. We grew up in the same same area. He was a few years ahead of me, and I was terrified by him. He's done some bad things, but then you look at the way he's upbringing and, and that, and you almost understand it. So the type of people I'm speaking to are not the ones that are still encouraging you know, crime or, or supporting crime, but it's just trying to understand why they went down that, uh, that path. And I think that's what comes out in the book. So it's sort of taking the reader on a journey with myself how I'm sort of changing my views. I haven't become soft. Like I'm not, you know, I'm still, you know, you do the crime mm. time, you do do the crime, you do the time type attitude. But it's made me look at uh, life a little bit differently, which is healthy, I think. And, and Graham is is just such a fascinating person. I, I Before I uh, I spoke to him, I listened to your episode on your podcast, I yep. Catch Killers, with him. Yeah. And just listening to him talk in depth about his childhood, and you think yep. to yourself, how does this dude come out any other way? Yes. Yeah. Like there's no there's no way that this man can come out any other way other than a violent human being. And he is a very nice dude. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what he was like then, but he's a very nice dude now. And you look at him, you look at other people who have been particularly, let's talk, you know, um, 30, 40 years ago, in institutions where they might have been assaulted or, or, yeah. or particularly in like boys' homes and stuff yeah. like that, um, you know, all of a sudden they've been removed from their families for whatever reason. Maybe there's been a death. Maybe something's happened. Then they've been looked after by the state or by uh, a church group. Then other horrible things happen to them there. Then they go into uh, juvie. Something happens yeah. to them there. I'm not sure what happened in Grafton. What what, what was the arrangement there? Grafton was where uh, the intractables. So these were the prisoners that were causing other prisoners uh, uh, in prisons that the corrective services couldn't control them. So they all bundled them all together and sent them up to Grafton. 
And the, the Grafton welcome was um, you get out of the prison van and uh, you're attacked with batons and all that. It was right. accepted. So that was a way of dealing with it. It was a punishment uh, prison, but it created a lot of violent people. Mm. And, uh, you know, corrective services, I, I don't want to um, bash corrective services because I'm hearing it from the prisoners' point of view. There's some really good people in there trying trying to make a difference within the prisons and that, that's important to get across. But that was just, you know, you're looking at the 70s. The world was a little bit different. Oh, these are bad bastards. What are we going to do? We're going to put them in there and if they misbehave, we're going to break them. Mm. And that that's what they did, you know. Bernie was in uh, solitary confinement and he told the story um, about uh, he was trying to stay sane. He found a button because it was just black and he was in there for months. And uh, So he'd throw the button round in his cell and that would occupy his brain because he'd look for the, the button by feel all around the cell and sometimes he'd find it quickly. Other times it might take him a day, but that gave his day a purpose. So you get put in that environment and you wonder how you would turn out. And then, uh, yeah, Russell Manser. Um, yeah, he got sent to, um, he grew up in Mount Druitt, came from a good family, but just, you know, saw the wild streaks, saw the gangsters and thought, that's the life I want to live. Knocked off cars as, uh, you know, pe- people did and then um, sent to a boy's home and was sexually assaulted by the people, you know, and everyone was getting sexually assaulted there. And he's got this program called Voice of a Survivor, which is talking about, uh, um, institutional sexual assaults and uh, sexual abuse. And, uh, yeah, he turned himself into a tough guy, like he is a tough guy, because he didn't want that to happen to him again. And he got sent to Long Bay as a um, 16 or 17-year-old. The judge was punishing him because uh, he came from Mount Druitt and stole a car on the North Shore and he needed to be taught a lesson. Get sent there and was sexually abused uh, there as a, a, a kid in a, a, an adult prison. So... Yeah, how are you going to turn out if mm. that type of thing happens? So it's not justifying everything they do. There's, there's some people who've got no excuses and they're just born bad and they'll be bad for the rest of their lives. But it's interesting having a look at um, yeah, some of the journeys that people have gone through. There's another person I spoke to, Wilma Robb. She, her parents couldn't look after her and she was put in Parramatta Girls' Home and uh, the brutality. She never committed. She hasn't got a criminal offence. Uh, she's in her seventies now. Lovely lady, really, you know, just a beautiful soul. But uh, when you look at what happened to her as a child and how she was brutalised, like a face being smashed in and teeth knocked out, and just horrendous things for a young girl that hadn't done anything wrong, had just didn't have parents that could look after her. And uh, so. Those type of people have sort of opened open my eyes to uh, to different things, and that's sort of the journey I've been on because I've left the cops, and yeah, that was my thing. I one day I was a, a, a cop, you know, the cops cop. That was that was my life, and that was taken away from me literally overnight. So I had to steer my passion some somewhere else, and uh, yeah, that's uh, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Yeah, you know, and and, and people love it. They they love the jube. People yeah. cannot get enough of the Jew. <laughs> Mate, I was at your show in Newcastle yeah, with the great Rob Galton. <laughs> yeah. And people were there. There were 40-year-olds throwing knickers up on the stage. It was beautiful. That's it was funny. Thing. I couldn't believe it. I was just like, like I knew like I, yeah. I knew you were good at what you, what you did. Yeah. But I went to the show not knowing how you were going to do it. Yeah. And it was an immersive experience. It was yeah. great. It was fantastic. And yeah. people, they loved it. They were sticking around out the front waiting for you to come out afterwards, but you were too busy. Having yeah. a good time uh, out the back, but it was just—it was really, really cool. And I, lo- I just 
like kudos yeah. to you <laughs> and, and Rob for creating yeah. an amazing show. Well, uh, there's a his- history to that show. Like when uh, when it was put to me to do this live stage show, like I'm comfortable talking in public. I, I did that a lot when I was mm. in the police. You know, you, you're doing media stand-ups or, or you know, presentations. But this was completely different. This is people are coming to see you to be entertained. And uh, it was sort of, I, I was reluctant when I was approached to do it. And then they, they threw Rob Carlton in the mix. And Rob, who's a, a you know, an actor, been in the industry his whole life, really talented fellow and a good mate of mine. We've been mates for years. He said, no, we can do this. And uh, this will be great. You've got a thousand stories. We'll put it on stage. It'll be fantastic. I thought... In my stupid little mind, we'd be sitting down and there'd be a Q&A, which you know, I've, I've done a hundred times. Okay, well, that's not that hard. And people would probably walk out and go, oh, yeah, that was good. It was, you know, we got to see, you know, hear about crime. And Rob's going, no, stupid, this is a theatre. Because <laughs> <laughs> he is a thespian. Oh, very my word. Very much so. He so. rang me up the other week. He goes, Mr. Butterfield. <laughs> I was like, who is this? He goes, oh, yeah. hey, Rob, how are you, mate? <laughs> yeah, he, he is dead set, a classic. So I'm thinking, okay, two chairs, and Rob will go, so why did you join the police, Gary? And I'd, I'd be like that. He's gone, no. What? Give us a story. And, and Rob, because he, he read the um, book for the uh, audio book, of I Catch Killers, and he, he's known me that long, so he knows all my stories anyway. Um, and he's gone, okay, let's start with something something powerful. And I go, well, yeah, this the uh, crime I talked about was a horrendous crime in 2004 where uh, a young girl was abducted and the father was um, murdered by this notorious pedophile. And I'm always cautious doing a show that I'm not going to glorify crime. And that was something, that was a starting point. Well, I don't want to glorify crime, but I want people to have an understanding of what, what crime is about. So I've said, okay, let, let's talk about this because people will be yeah, just shocked by it but understand the gravity of what we're talking about. And if you want to know the life of a homicide detective, this is smack bang. This gives you a snapshot of what it's like over 24 hours. And Rob's going, okay, well, we're going to take the audience on a journey. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, fuck, where are we going with this? Yeah. So in the end, and you you, you saw the show, it's, it's coming out and it, it's really, it's not what people expected from yeah, a, show, a show like that. And uh, it was great. It was, it was a good experience. I've never been so nervous in my life. Well, that's always going to be my next question because oftentimes when I'm about to go on stage, yep. I'm thinking to myself, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I'm not funny. Yeah. How do you feel? I, I felt like that <laughs> 10 times and you're a damn sight funnier than I. How how it came because it was put off twice because of COVID. Yep. And after it was put off the second time, it was almost in the back of my mind. Okay, well, let's just let it slide. This is but the universe saying yeah, no, yeah, don't do this. No, because I always thought like the podcast being successful, the books being successful, and other things I've done. I'm thinking, okay, this is going to take that one step too far where you fall off the edge, and it's just going to be a whole crowd booing and or just silent, just staring and just walking out. And yeah, so I'm having those nightmares, and then. Uh, all the planets aligned with the places opening up. So we only had about two or three weeks before the show actually started to get going. And uh, our first two shows were at Enmore Theatre and I... <laughs> Your first two shows were at the Enmore yeah, Theatre. On, on a Saturday night. That's madness. <laughs> I know. Um and so, stupidly, I'm looking for Enmore Theatre. I found your show at the oh. Enmore Theatre. I'm watching yeah, that. Yeah, very good. I'm, I'm seeing it at home. And it was a good show. I might, might Thank add. you very much. Well, I'm seeing it at home going, 
fuck, there's a lot of people there. That's oh. a bit. That's a bit intense. Mate, when I walked out that night, I was terrified because yeah. we had we were filming that and we had to be there the entire day, which made yeah. it worse. Yes. So I, I was there from ten o'clock in the morning until showtime at nine o'clock at night. So I was just like, oh, this is just. I was panicking. And Claire was like, it's gonna be fine. I'm like, this is fucked. I don't want to do this. Well, <laughs> that was that was my narrative. So we get there, and uh, Nick Fordham, who uh, who manages a lot of the stuff I've done, he encouraged me. He's going, no, it's great. I'm going, Nick. What if we put it up and no one comes? Mm. Like that's going to be embarrassing. The you know, I catch Killers live show and there's no one there. There'll be you there and a couple of family and a few few friends. He's going, no, no, it'll be right, mate. I'm telling you, this is going to roll. And then uh, on the night. Rob's in the I, – I was calling them the change room, but now I understand it's a dressing room. But he was in the change room beside me and I could hear him doing voice warm-up. You know, oh. I, he, you know, just, and I'm thinking, what's going on? I stuck my head around the corner and Rob's getting into character and I've got nothing. I, I'm just – I am just so nervous. You don't I, need anything. I don't do that. You I, don't need that. I started shadow boxing. That's what I do. That's <laughs> yeah. what I do out the back. I'm always shadow boxing because, yeah. like, there's nothing if, – if you saw me before I walk on stage, I would look like the biggest nutcase yeah. of all time. Because yeah. what else do you do? Yeah, I, I just had to dump some adrenaline and yep. just, just shake those nerves out. And then uh, <laughs> the show went the, the show went well and uh, then Nick uh, Fordham, uh, uh, my manager – Came up and gone. Oh, I was so nervous. I thought we've gone too far this time. And I've gone. Oh, thank you very much for telling me now. But uh, it was a good, a good experience. And uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it with Rob. I took a lot from Rob, and it's given me a conf- confidence to do, do a lot of other things. But it's quite intoxicating up there and, mm. and telling a story and uh, you know playing with the the crowd. And each each show that you'd know better than I I did uh, has a different feel. And you've got to, you know, work with the crowd and that. But, uh, yeah, we had some funny times and uh, in, enjoyed it. And, mm. uh, yeah, it was uh, something – it's uh, like a tick-the-box type thing. It's something that uh, I've enjoyed doing. And uh, I sound like a wanker, but now I can say I uh, I performed at Enmore on a Saturday well, night. But that's amazing. <laughs> that's a really big deal. And I think that um, the great thing about that particular show is you can now – you know, it wasn't <laughs> – it wasn't created in a way where, you know, you go from A to B or A to Z of your life. Yeah. Where you can never do another show again. Yes. Yeah. You left people wanting more. You yeah. left that going, okay, in two years' time, when yeah. Gary's back out, I'm definitely going to come. Yeah, well, that, that's – and again, um, kudos to uh, to Rob because it, it was – for theatre, we want to give people every emotion. And, yeah, there's tears, there's laughter, there's anger, there's, there's shock, there, there's everything that covered it. And it was sort of ebbed and flowed and – I enjoyed it and I didn't feel like it was selling out. I, d- I didn't feel like I was just going, oh, yeah, we locked up this crook, locked up that crook. It was sort of, yeah, you got to reveal a little bit of yourself. So I gave a little bit of myself in, in the show. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it was it was an experience but uh, absolutely terrified. Mm. And I can normally, you know, steal myself. You go into the witness box. That's a scary, scary time and, and different things that, uh, yeah, come up in life. But, uh, yeah, walking out on the crowd – I only forgot my lines once, yep. and that was terrifying. And I think it was down at Melbourne at the Entertainment Centre or whatever. It was really big hall, and I'm staring. The lights were hitting me in the face, and I'm talking, and then I just I went blank. Yeah, <laughs> I went blank, and there was just this awkward silence for about ten seconds, and then I stumbled through, and Rob helped out a little bit. But that was uh, that was the worst. But I also learnt you're as good as your last show mm-hmm. because after I did about three or four, I've gone, yeah, I got this covered. And one I didn't. Yeah, you know, wind myself up and and get the right degree of nervous tension, 
and I, I thought I was a bit uh, slack on that one. So, yeah. It, oh, I think the nerves are great. You've got, great. you've got to have them, haven't you? Because, you know, if you go out there, he's calm and collected. Like People can feel that. Yeah. And I don't think they want to because they've done everything that night to get themselves in the position where they're at your show. You know, they've got a babysitter. They've thought about it all week. They've spent their money. If you walk out there and you don't care, mm. fuck that. You know, you'll yeah. never get them as a repeat customer. One, one, 100, 100%. And that, that's where I, I really make the point of, you know, giving a bit of yourself to, to the show. So they're feeling like you're, you're, you're playing your part in mm. it. And, uh, so that that's why it's sort of raw and, and we're fairly open with what, what we say. But yeah, it was it was fun. Yeah, and, and I, I came to your show and I came backstage and you had yeah. a big group back there and you introduced me to uh to Graham Henry. Yeah. And you said, You gotta meet this bloke. And I had no idea who he was. Yeah. I'd never heard of him before. And you talked about him like, Oh, he you know, he's a you know, you, yeah. you said, you, you know this guy. So I can't remember what I, he said, but you were like, you yeah. you'll know him. Yeah. I had no idea. Until I got in the car and Googled him, I was like, Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Claire goes, oh, I just offered him a cup of tea if he comes yeah. over. And yeah. then we Googled who he was. and I was like, wow, that's really interesting. And now you're mixing with completely different people and it seems like that's what you're doing for this book as well. Yeah, it, it is. And, like, you know, people might say, well, what's he doing? Has he crossed sides and that? And I've had gone some, to the dark side. Gone to the dark side. And, uh, yeah, these uh, – and – yeah, some of the people I'm speaking to, and I, I, I'm not saying this disrespectfully, like, yeah, some of them would probably want to belt me and they would in the right uh, right circumstances. And I've, I've gone to functions where, yeah, people, yeah, I'm looking at who, who have I locked up here? Have, have I gone after this person? Have or you ran person? into people at shows? Yeah, a few people have uh, come up to me and, uh, yeah, said certain certain things. But really? it's been good, all, okay. all good so far. So far. Anyone uh, you locked up? There's a few that have turned up that I've locked up, but yeah, and it's all gone well. Yeah, no, nothing personal, nothing yeah, personal. Okay. Um, so, yes, yeah, speaking to these these people, but I think they get where I'm coming from now, and I, I've been fortunate, and it, I think it started with Bernie Matthews that uh, he vouched for me because it's a world where yeah. they do they're not going to talk to me unless they they think yeah they're comfortable talking to me. And they understand where I'm coming from and uh, they're not judging me for, for being a copper. Some would, and I know some people I've spoken to get a bit of shit thrown back at them going, what the hell, why are you speaking to a, speaking to a cop? Um, but I think when they break it all down, what I'm trying to do is just let people tell, tell their story and uh, have, have had no real sort of incidents mm. at this stage. Now, you bumped back into the news recently. Uh, and I spoke to you, and I don't, I yep. don't want to go into too much depth. I don't know what you're comfortable yeah. talking about. Yeah. But you were back uh, in the news, back front and center, front and center. Can you run <laughs> us through what happened there? Yeah. Okay. That was uh, again being dragged back into the William Tyrrell matter, which is uh, a continuous source, uh, a continual source of frustration to me. In that, I, I think, yeah, we really need questions answered on what's going on there. That was a person, and the, the judgment hasn't come down. It was a, a judge alone. A person was suing the New South Wales Police for malicious prosecution, which is fine. Which is uh, which is his his right. Where I was a little bit, well, not a little bit aggrieved. I was pissed off that uh, the focus was on me. But that, again, I accept that you stick your head up, but yeah. But I went to that court matter. This person was suing the New South Wales Police. He wasn't suing Gary Jubelin, mm. and I. I get off the train at the railway station, there's cameras in my face and every it was reported like it's virtually, this is what Gary Jubelin has done. Did you anticipate that reaction as you got off the train to the courthouse? I, I was hoping, 
hoping that it wouldn't be. Like I, I, I really thought they would report it. Yeah, let's just see what this is. I, I played a part in the police investigation for this matter, but I'm more, I'm more than comfortable in justifying it, uh, my position. But I spent two days in the witness box under um, the majority of which was cross-examination. Um, I had my I Catch Killers book there because they were quoting passages from, from that. Uh, and again, that's their, that's their right. But I really felt like I was, um, I felt isolated in that I'm answering questions um, for what I did in the police, but I didn't have the resources of the police supporting me. I, I didn't have access to the documents that, uh, yeah, created seven years ago. So, look, we'll wait and see what happens in, uh, what happens uh, when the judge comes back, whether this person was, whether it was a malicious prosecution. I'm comfortable in uh, my part in it, um, you know. Whether that what that counts for, who, who knows? But uh, I've got documents there that supported it. I was tendering documents, and uh, I, I feel comfortable with the part I played in uh, played in that matter. But what I didn't like about it, and I'm talking around the subject a little bit, is how it was hung out like I'm the person to to blame for it. Well, no, there's mm. all these reports I've done that everything I was doing was being sanctioned from above. So don't just hang. Well, that was going to be my, my my point. Is this they're in your employer? Yeah, you have a boss, right? Yes. Like you're not just going out yeah. willy nilly. No, and one hundred percent. So that's the thing that I tried to get across in the witness box, but I wasn't getting much help because I didn't have anyone representing my personal needs. There was people representing the New South Wales police needs, but uh, yeah, two uh, two days in the witness box is not fun. I didn't want to be dragged back into it. I, I'm always prepared to justify my actions, so uh, I never shy away from it. Other people say, "Well, no, I've left, or I've gone off sick. I'm not available." Mm. I, I'll always front up, front up to a court matter. And on the William Tyrrell matter, uh, another part that became public was um, towards the end of uh, last year, um, where they were doing a search um, in a garden, at, I believe. In in the garden, and uh, yeah, it, it started off all the fanfare with, uh, "Yeah, we've got a breakthrough. We know, yeah." We're anticipating we're going to find something. Because that, that, that is what we thought here. We were like, oh, my God, this is – something's happening. What, what did you feel when you were at home hearing about this? I assume you hear about it on the news for the first I, time. Look, when it came out, the phone just rings. So everyone's phoning me. Yeah. Uh, the journalists are phoning me going, what What do you think this is? What do you think that is? And this is not with the benefit of hindsight. Mm. I said, uh, look, first day, I wasn't sure. Maybe they have got a breakthrough. I haven't been on it for three three years. They've been working on it. Maybe maybe there is a breakthrough. Then I ha- started to hear things that were coming through, and uh, I'm not going to name the uh, the people, but the people that the accusing finger was being pointed <coughs> at. And I thought, no, that's that's not correct. Mm. Um, but it wasn't my position to uh, make uh, make comments at that stage. So I just sort of sat there quietly. And then one day. My phone started about the second or third day. My phone just started going ballistic. Are you okay? Are you this? Are you that? And this is all coming up in the, in the morning. I'm thinking, I think I'm okay. I'm at home. I'm not doing anything wrong. And all these friends and you know, past acquaintances are, are reaching out. And uh, the New South Wales Police Commissioner decided to criticise the investigation, the investigation I, I ran. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> what, what do I do here? My initial reaction was just go on the front foot and I thought about it. Do you just, yeah, if you're being criticised, do you just let it play out? Mm. I didn't really know what to do, but it became so intense. Like I was literally on the phone for about, uh, oh, well, the whole day. I, I just I, I didn't sit down. I was basically on the phone with people going, 
what what do you want to say? What do you want to say? I thought, well, stuff this. I'm going to go go on and, and put my uh, position forward. And I went on uh, Ben Fordham's show because that's who the commissioner when he criticised the investigation. I didn't want to. I don't want to be critical of the police, but it got to the point where if you're going to publicly criticise an investigation I ran, well, I'm going to defend myself. And so I went on, and uh, I think, yeah, I, I I think I was balanced in the way I, I put my message across, but basically said, well. Yeah, there's all these documents there. Um, they're, ten- they're, they're admissible documents. They're there, but uh, accountable documents, I should say. They're accountable documents, and it'll show everything I've done. And in the four years that I ran the investigation, there was not one bit of criticism from anyone above me about the way I, I ran the investigation. So that, then to hear the most senior officer criticising the investigation, which I've never heard that before. And, and people for inter, interstate were um, ringing me and saying, it's unusual, like the New South Wales Police Commissioner criticising an active investigation. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So it was unfortunate, but Isaac, the, the saddest thing about the whole William Tyrrell thing is how many people have been hurt in this. And I'm, I'm not including myself in that. Anything that's happened to me pales into insignificance compared to what's happened to the his biological family and the foster family. And then the rumours that have been spread and the, the information that's been leaked to the media, I think, is is quite disgraceful. And people always uh, said, I, I go hard on crooks. And I, I did go hard on crooks. I, I make no apologies for that. But I would never throw people under the bus like they've been thrown under on this. And, yeah, unless – well, not unless – you don't throw people under the bus like that. So you've got people that have suffered, um, yeah, losing a child, as in William, and then the other things that are flowing on from it. And I think people want, uh, uh, yeah, really want some answers. And uh, I also look at, and I'm only talking about this because I was dragged into it. And it's a funny thing, and it's almost like if I wasn't criticised, I would respectfully stay on the sideline. But I was criticised very deliberately. Um, about the way I ran the investigation, well, I make the comment that the way that played out in the media, everyone was certain there was a breakthrough. I've never seen a circus like... Well, they took the media there. Yes. The media was there from day one. It's not like, oh, hang on, we're up at Kendall just, you know, driving around, we'll have a bit of a dig, see what's going on. No, the media is there from day one, like it is an announcement is about to be made. It was was like a theatre. It was uh, Rob Carlton couldn't have done a, a good a job. Let's like, not go that far. Okay. He's pretty good. Okay. He's pretty good. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe he could have. But it was like a theatre. Yeah. That every piece of material they found, it was here's a possible Here, breakthrough. We found here's, this. Here's this. Here's that. So it went on for oh, I think three weeks. And yep. uh, after the three weeks, 
I would have thought someone would have to front the media and answer questions. Like you invited the media in, you invited society in to have a look at what we're doing, and then it just stopped. And there was a half-page media release saying we've uh, concluded our uh, our search up there. At, at what point does the it's like attack or bringing you into it happened? Is that yep. is that after the three weeks when they come up with nothing? That uh, right at at the start at the okay. start. So it was in two the day two or day three right brought me into it and uh, I. Yeah, I, I just hope and I, I think and we, we bring it all back and I, I don't want it to be a slanging match between me and the police because that, that's ridiculous. The priority should be about, you know, let's find out mm. what's happened to William. But if you're going to engage the media the way that the media were engaged during that search, it, it's a double-edged sword. You've got to be then prepared to answer questions mm. um, when it doesn't play out the way that you've uh, you've led everyone to believe it was going to play out. So. I, I haven't seen anything like it in my, my career. So when, when you were on that case yep. and you got pulled off the case, yeah. how close do you think you were to solving it? Yeah, uh, look, that's a question that's offered uh, often asked of me, obviously. I can't say um, uh, definitively I would have uh, would have solved it and I think it would be I'd be a bit of a wanker if you go off, oh, you just let me on, left me of on course. the case, I, I, I would have solved it. But I had a clear line of inquiry that I was pursuing and I had a strategy and I had experience and that was all just cut off when I was taken away. So I don't want to be critical of the people that took it took it over. But, yeah, I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times, I'll say it till the day I died, I never did a handover. Yeah, I was just going to say, there was never a handover. Yeah, and uh, people are just ignorant if they say, well, there was no benefit from a handover. The fact that I didn't sit down and speak to the people taking over that investigation is, is shameful, I, I think. Um, whether it made a difference, we don't know. But what I do know about murder investigations, and that's what we have to consider William's disappearance as a murder investigation, success is on incremental uh, incremental millimetres. So you make one mistake, you've got to take every advantage mm. that you've got. And why wouldn't you debrief me? Like what, what was my, my charges weren't, I, I wasn't this corrupt person that was going out robbing banks or, or selling drugs or whatever. I recorded the conversation whilst working on the investigation. It would, have, it would not have impacted on the integrity of the investigation to, um, yeah, a, a handover, a, a debrief. But... Uh, Again, I keep saying the, the sad part about all this is that to a degree, and I, I play a part in it, I suppose, just talking about the conflict, is that uh, it's getting lost, that mm. uh, a three-year-old child's disappeared. And, you know, as a uh, law enforcement agency, we should be judged by our response for it. Mm. And uh, it becomes about you and the, the the boss of the police. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, like, well, let's find this kid. When, when it's all said and done, that's right. Who cares? And that's got right. to break the hearts of the family. Yeah. They see you back up there and this bloke talking to me, talk yeah. about each other. Well, not about it. You're not talking about him, but you're talking about his uh, statements about you on a radio show. Yeah. Like, hang on. Wouldn't you prefer us all working together? Where's William? Like, yeah. yeah. And it's like Claire... My, my wife, she's yep. very invested in, in this case. Yeah. She's read the books on it and she's just, it breaks her heart yep. as it does for a lot of people. And when all this happens, it's like, come on. Mm. Like we, I don't know, I, like, I guess you're butting your head against the wall at the same time yeah, everyone else is. Look, it, it, it frustrates me and I think it frustrates a lot of people that um, we need to find out. And uh, one thing I do know, a lot of people come to conclusions by what's fed to the media. The police provide information to the media and the people naturally go, okay, this has happened, that's happened. 
I, I just say let, let's be very cautious on, on this one. This was a difficult investigation. I hope the facts come out, the full facts come out, and then people can make a, an informed judgment. Um, the inquest, I'm not sure when the coroner's going to hand down the inquest. I believe at one stage he was going to hand down the findings, I think almost two years ago. Um, it's still just sitting there. So I'd be very interested when uh, when that occurs too. So, yeah. off Completely off that topic, yep. let's move away from it. But um, obviously it needs to be spoken about. Yeah. When we talk about the path that someone follows and we talk about badness, yeah. what do you think should be done? If, if, if I have a child and they are 14 years old yeah. and they end up in a, in a correctional facility for kids, yeah. what happens at that point? What, what should be looked at, do you yeah. think? I, I think you can make, and this, this is just my, I'm, I'm not an expert, but from my observations of it, you've really got to try to make that, there's that dangerous period of kids where they can go off the rails. And, yeah, that sort of 10, 12 to 15, 16, you can lose kids in a, mm. in a heartbeat. You've got to really, and I've talked more from a parenting point of view, but uh, I know with my um, son's uh, soccer team, I was coaching them around that, that age, and you could see kids that were on the right path and then just lost their way very quickly. So my thing with, uh, with kids is that you've just got to watch them closely, steer them, make, have a good role model there for them. A lot of the kids that uh, I see get into trouble don't have good role models. Talk about um, bikies. A lot of people join gangs because they're looking for that connection. So if you can give kids that connection, I'm a big believer in team sport, and I know you know team sport gets criticised where you hear you know someone doing something wrong in the NRL or or whatever, but that teaches people that they've got to work together. Yeah. So I, I think think that's in, important, but uh, it's those early years that you've just got to watch that if if the kid heads off in the wrong direction, and I think you know a lot of people say that uh, the quality of the kid is um, you can look at by the circle of friends that they keep. And uh, I think some kids get led led astray. Then you've got uh, yeah kids with horrendous upbringings, and what I've found yeah ones that have been sexually assaulted or bashed when they're young. If one good person comes into their life, the difference that can make. And I see it time and time again. Different stories where a kid is dead set heading down the road of he's going to spend half his time behind steel bars, but one good person shows him a, shows him a bit of respect, interest, and love. All the things that people need that can make a hell of a difference. So you know, if if you've got uh, if you've got uh, someone <clears throat> that you're worried about heading off in the wrong direction, just stay close to them as you can and just steer them through and guide guide them through it. And, uh, we, we see a lot of kids now who are sort of in that Eshe culture, yeah, where they're. You know the scooter gangs and all that type of stuff, hanging out at train yeah, stations. Yeah, I saw and that tag. That st- scooter gang that was weird. horrendous. It's weird. Yeah. It's I, I don't know what it is. Like yeah. I've got friends whose son is sort of mixing around yeah. in that sort of crew, and they don't really like they're not doing anything. Yeah, like they they might be stealing vapes. Yeah, but that's it. Like there's nothing really going on. Like they're not like a bikey gang. Like they're not yeah. whatever they're doing, or they're not sort of going around selling drugs or anything like that. They're just sort of running around doing really annoying shit. Yeah, like they're tagging things and like I hate graffiti. It does my fucking head in. Like <laughs> yeah. it's just my my thing. Like the, there's a house around the corner here, and the people are just about to move into it, and someone yeah. tagged all over the house. I'm like you fucking thing. Yeah. did my head in, but. Just little things. People yeah. seem to be doing those yeah. and young kids. Yeah. And I don't know. And they always seem to be coming from good houses. Yeah. Like they're going around robbing. Uh, they might be stealing a car. Yeah. 
You know, they're going around their little, they're like 14 years old still in a car. It's like, where, that, does, that, this, where does this come from? Uh, look, and I, I don't, yeah, you know, I'm talking like I'm this enlightened person seeing, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. seeing life from a, a different thing. But I, I saw like that, that uh, I saw a clip on TV with the scooter gang or whatever, mm. young kids, 14, 15, just total disrespect. I, I'd like to see some hard policing come in on, on that line. Like that is just not acceptable. You let them get away with that and that's that's going to cause a problem problem down the track and people um yeah that's part of that gang culture but then they'd be looking up to the bikies there's probably been too much said about bikies of recent recent times you know all all the stuff that's um going on in in the media at the moment the people that i've been speaking to the ones that have gone through that time and they look back and go look the bikies that had its moment in life, but when I look back, you know, you join a bikie gang, you're either going to end up in jail or dead, and that's generally how it how it play, plays out. So we've got to get the right uh, right role models. Talk about sports, yeah, you know, I'm a big one in, in team sport, but I'm also very much push the uh, the old um, um, police citizens and police boys club or uh, police youth clubs, yep. yeah. That culture of giving kids confidence, um, boxing. I, I I love boxing. That's my uh, my passion. I see kids come in, and it gives them a sense of um, self respect, um, where they don't have to prove themselves. They find out they're not as tough as they think they are because mm. they come in and this little skinny kid will towel them up in the in the ring, and then they learn that if you put effort in, that effort, yeah, you know, by putting effort in, you'll get respect and you'll get reward and you'll get discipline and all that. So I, I think things like that can uh, make a difference, but. I, I'm horrified that kids, there's that sense of entitlement that think they can create havoc. Now, when I was that age, and I'm, I'm sure you would have been the same if, if a policeman turned up or an adult He's spoke terrified. to me. I would have been, yeah. yeah. But I, I, I know my my old man, when he was growing up in uh, in Penrith, yeah. St Mary's, coppers would beat the shit out of you. Yep. You know, that was what would happen. He, yes. he got put in the back of a, a paddy wagon one night and they did donuts around a park. And he, you know, cuffed up, uh, yeah. hanging off the ceiling, and then you know, skinned his arm and all that type of stuff. But you yep. didn't fuck with him, yes. You yep. know, and I, I think I, obviously that's not great. No, and and that, a, co- a copper that night beat the shit out of him. Yeah, and you not can't, great. Yeah, and you can't you can't allow that either. But so, there's got to be middle ground here. Yeah, you know yeah. where there is a bit of fear, but yeah. you go into there's going to be some repercussions. Yes, like, yeah. and I think these kids are just like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, my parents, nothing's going to happen. Yeah, that that total uh, total lack of respect or, mm. or concern, and and that is concerning. That I I could see. That I I was watching it, and I'm thinking. This is pretty bad. That those kids, if they think they can get away with that sort of shit and there's not consequences, this is going to escalate. Like I think the one I saw, they they threw a milkshake or something over over a bloke or a, a glass of coke over some poor bloke working at the shopping centre, and uh, I thought, okay, they get away with that if there's not consequences for that. Then the next thing they'll uh, walk up and belt someone and take their wallet. That, yeah. that, that there'll be a progression because they they got no fear. So, yeah, it is is concerning. But uh, I I would like the police that respect to come back for police, and it doesn't have to be. And I know the stories, and we've all got the stories of you know like happened to your old, old man. But there's still got to be that authority, and and yeah, you know, there's a point in time. And I've I've always said when I when I was a cop. You you could you could um, diffuse situations, but you diffuse situations without escalating. Like you don't come in dramatically. You talk to someone, you diffuse the situation, 
And then, but when you've got to draw the line in the sand, you draw the line in the sand, and okay, mm. well, you're about to feel the weight of the law come down. Well, you've got to have some power. If yeah. you don't have any power, like people call police because they have power. Yeah. If you don't have any power, what are you going to do? Just try and talk people. Like yeah. when I, I used to work in security, yep. and you, you have a, a female who's carrying on or trying to fight, yep. you have no power. Like <laughs> exactly. you're just going, can you please stop? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But that's yeah. what police seem to have, particularly with young people right now. Yeah. They're just like, can you not do that? And they take it to their parents and the parents can't do anything either. I mean, I see this with my own family, right? Yeah. So when I was growing up, if mum threatened me with dad, yeah. I was shit scared. <laughs> now my brothers, like yeah. who are, you know, coming up into their 20s now, yeah. back when they were, you know, in their late teenage years or, or whatever, like if mum said, oh, can you do that? They just go, nah. And dad would go, I can't make them. <laughs> yeah. But when I was a kid, I was terrified. Oh, I, I, I know. I, my household was the same. Dad's coming home. Oh, oh shit. shit. Like, you're <laughs> yeah. scared. You're like, oh, wait until your father gets home. And yeah. now they're just like, bring it on. Yeah. Let's I, go. I know. I know. And that's, that's that. We've got to get that right, uh, right balance, haven't we? We've got to get that right mix because if we get it wrong, we're going to have this whole generation of uh, yeah. people that uh, and we're seeing out, that out of control. But that, that ego shift and leaving your ego at the door yeah. is great with combat sports, as you said, with yeah. Boxing. It's the same oh. with um, jiu-jitsu and MMA yeah. training, that type of stuff. Learning that, you know, learning skills, yeah. learning how to fight, yeah. really important. Something that I wish I did as a kid. Yep. Uh, but learning also that someone can fuck you up very easily and you don't and, know if it's going to come or not. And I, what I also find is that the kids that uh, – and it, it translates into adult life. If you know you can look after yourself, you don't. You can walk away from more things because mm. you don't have to prove yourself. If your insecurities, oh, maybe he could belt me. But if you know, no, I can, I can belt that bloke. I don't have to prove myself. Yeah, sorry, mate, you're a tough guy. See ya. Yeah, uh, or you might, you might end up carrying a knife if you don't know that you yeah, can handle yourself. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that's a concern too. We saw it? that up in Brisbane recently. I don't know if you saw that video of yeah. the young man being stabbed. Uh, in the neck, I, yeah. I I saw it come up on Twitter, and I was just watching. It. I didn't know what know what yeah. it was. I was yeah. really taken back. Yeah, like you've just seen this young man's life end. Yeah, right and, and there. that's and that's what people don't realise with knives. They don't think they're guns, and they think, oh well, I can be tough with a knife. But I've seen too many times in homicide where one stab wound in the wrong wrong spot uh, causes uh, someone's life. Talking about um, the policing too, but I do feel sorry for police in this day and age because. The old, yeah, you know, take them round the back and give them a kick up the ass. Could you imagine if a police officer did that now, and it would be mm. filmed, and it would be the most outrageous thing? They'd lose their job. They'd be, they'd and it's be, not their fault. Yeah, it's not the police's fault yeah. at all. It's, yeah. I guess, it's politics at this point. It, it is. There is a bit of politics, but I, I think that, uh, yeah, home, the that discipline's got to be instilled in the in the kids, but. They've still got to have respect for the police. And if we lose respect for the police, I think it's um, in America where, uh, yeah, uh, California, uh, around or LA, where the police are not intervening if, if the offence is of a minor nature under a certain amount. Or I think whatever. if you steal under $1,000 or something, they don't even pros- uh, like prosecute you at all. They don't come out. They, yeah. It's, That's mad. It, it is mad because you can imagine how that would uh, the flow on effect from there. What does that teach people? What does oh. that teach an entire generation? Yeah. That the cops aren't going to do shit. Well, you, you start to take it. Imagine if you're walking down or you've got a bike and someone's just stealing your bike because it's under a thousand dollars and you can't do anything. What what are you going to do? You t- take law into your own hands. Yeah, and and everyone's got a gun. It's scary. Like when I went to America, we went to a, a gun show in Florida, and it was great <laughs> fun. It was great. Everyone's you just walk around with a gun. It's amazing, but. You know, do you trust everyone with a gun? No. 
I um, I think one of the the good things that uh, came from um, the Port Arthur massacre was uh, taking guns off the street. And I was in the police at the time, and I remember people would just come in with bags of guns and just put yeah. them on the counter at the police station. And yeah, those domestic situations that escalate, people do stupid things at at, at particular points, and when you've got a gun, it's too easy. And you pull the trigger, and someone someone's dead. And it is so easy. Yeah, you yeah. know, I, I I love shooting guns. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of guns, and yeah. I understand the American point of view where hey, we have the right to to bear yeah, arms. Bear arms. I get it. I get where you're coming from, but also I know a lot of crazy people who I don't want to have a gun. But also, if something happens at my house, yeah. I would prefer to have a weapon. Yes. So it's it's one of these things where you got to weigh up. It's like, hey, I should have a gun. But no one else. <laughs> now that would be <laughs> that's if, how if, I think it should work. Could, if you could bring that in, that'd be cool. Yeah, <laughs> but they are fun. I've and got I get the gun, it. and no one else has got the but gun. But I yeah. see people all the time that I'm like, thank fuck they don't have a yeah. gun. Yeah, or teachers. <laughs> They're talking about how giving teachers oh, in schools guns. That scares. Me. I've had some substitute teachers that I reckon would have turned and sprayed the entire class. I had some crazy teachers uh, in my time. You did, uh, yeah. But th- there was one I won't mention the name, but it was funny <laughs> because we were having a uh, because he. Well, a long time ago, and he's he's since dead. But he assaulted me, like seriously, dragged me out of a window. And I was talking to uh, out of a window, out, out of a window, at music in the music class. How does someone drag someone out of a window? It was a big window, and I just happened to be sitting there. And some the person sitting beside me said something offensive to this teacher as he's walking past. He thought it was me, right? And he dragged me out of the window. Then he put me on detention, and it was quite weird. Just yeah, me and this creepy looking teacher just. Standing, staring at me day and day in, and to the point where I said, "No, I'm out of here." I wasn't a real tough guy. Mum was on the canteen. I said, "You go, yeah, good, good." Tell tell my mum because she's doing canteen duty. But I was speaking to Graham, and Graham apparently belted that teacher when uh, went because he went through the same school. Really? And I said, "Okay, so that's what's happened to him." So So Graham's quite a bit older than you. Yeah, yeah, he's. uh, I think he would have been probably. 10, 10 years ahead of me, sort of right. thing. But his reputation preceded preceded him growing up uh, around Epping. So this this poor teacher's been kicked the shit out of yeah. by Graham Henry, and yeah. then he's just picking people in classrooms. I, I, I can uh, take uh, him. Uh, Come here. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> That's the flow on effect. The flow on effect. So he's so. been he's had the shit kicked out of him. Yeah. by a gangster. Yeah, or, or a soon to be gangster. And then he's just turned. He's turned bad straight I, I, away. I think that that's what happened. I, well, actually, it's a bit sad. I think he had a mental health issue. But I, uh, yeah. well, being a teacher, yeah. and I, I know they love a they love a protest the yeah. teachers, and I get yeah. it. All right, yeah. oh, you get paid enough though. Calm down. Uh, <laughs> maybe pay coppers more. Maybe you should pay coppers more because they're yeah. out there dealing with crazy people. Uh, well, so are teachers though. I yeah. know a lot of crazy kids. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I can only imagine the shit that they have to deal with on a day to day basis. I thought I wanted to be a teacher. Yeah, yeah. Nah, looking at it now, knowing what teenage, like particularly teenage boys, are like, I it, could not think of anything worse. It, it, it would be a yeah. I I couldn't imagine it. Like it would uh, it would be terrifying having those kids come at you yeah. the whole time and, and it's the just way exhausting. Like I'm sure you saw it as a kid too. Yeah. Some of the breakdowns that teachers have, like when yeah. you when you make a teacher cry, like there's a part of you that's like, yes, we did it, and there's another part of you go, oh shit, we're bad, we're bad people. I I had a t- I had a teacher that, uh, and I was in uh, year eleven, I think it was, so I wasn't driving sixteen, and we had to go to a play. We went to the theatre, and uh, he's he was our English teacher, and uh, he's picked us up and uh, taken us to this play. Like it was all people getting 
where, how they could to the uh, to the play. I remember we walked in there and uh, he had all this alcohol shoved up his shirt and uh, it all fell out when we were walking into the theatre. And, yeah, we were 16-year-old kids. And then we finished – oh, this sounds like the story's going to end really bad. It mm. didn't. <laughs> then he invited us back to his place. Oh, what? <laughs> After the after the play to have more drinks. Oh, nice! And yeah, yeah, so it was just, <laughs> yeah, just and yeah, we're at fifteen, sixteen, and then I remember like we were, we were drunk. There was about three of us back at his place, and then uh, he's driven us home. And I remember pulling him up, uh, but when he pulled up out the front of my place, he nearly crashed because he was driving drunk and all that. And you think they're teachers? Yeah, they're. they're well, teachers are real people, and that's what you learn when you leave school. You have a friend that becomes a teacher, and yes. then they're going to school every day, and you go, oh. <laughs> I don't try because I got a mate. His name is he's yeah. a teacher. I don't know how he is not a, like, he's not a bad person, yeah. but he's just an idiot. I don't know how he's allowed <laughs> to teach like humans that are growing. What's like, his name? I'm gonna not gonna make this. Yeah, <laughs> I probably shouldn't mention his name. Maybe actually, uh, Connor, when you edit this, could you bleep his name out? Mr. Bleep. Mr. Bleeper. Um, no, he's a lovely man and he's a great teacher, yeah. woodwork teacher, uh, allegedly. Um, but, yeah, just these – like he goes to school every day and yeah. has never left school. Yeah. I, I, could, I, I don't know how they do it. No wonder it's, they, they love a day off look, protesting. I, all the, the protesting, but you've got to give a, a good teacher can make a difference. Like we've all had those good teachers in your life. Mm. And I, I think back to a couple that really left an impression on me and sort of steered me in uh, in the right direction. So, yeah, they're, I, I do respect teachers um, because they play such an important role and probably more so now, you know, the way society is and broken marriages and different things. So... Yeah, what do you back to guns? What do you think the Americans should do with the gun laws? Or what should they do with people having access to semi-automatic or automatic well, weapons? Well, I, I those automatic, you know, the right to bear arms. That's when you know I'm pissed off with you, but just you stand there so I can yeah. load, load my gun. Yep, and uh, you know with the um, the, the old gun school power. sort of yeah. Yeah, so I understand that, but uh, with these assault rifles and that, there's no place for civilians to have have those mm. weapons they're dangerous yeah they, they can kill a lot of people so you're not going to i, I don't know I, I don't understand the culture enough but it appears you're never going to be able to wind it back completely but when you hear those massacres at those schools and uh that's not oh, enough and they're to, crazy they're all the time too like it's a yeah. daily occurrence that a mass shooting happens there. that's not enough to jolt them back into okay let's take an extreme action I don't know what will so if they got to okay you can have a gun but you're only allowed one shot you know mm. it, it's it, it, something just not a semi-automatic or an assault rifle they call the assault rifles because they you know they're, they're, could, they're could you argue that a, a car is as dangerous like you could drive that into a group of people? Most most definitely, most definitely. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. Let's not give people ideas with with cars. But uh, I think it's the the build up with a firearm. It's just you know, angry person. And this is um, I'm referencing my book, which is a bit uh, sounds. No, nah, please go and, go and buy it. By the way, if you haven't bought it already, go I to I Amazon. Had a and copy of it here. Well, I know. I was, I was expecting <laughs> yeah. that. When is it out on uh, out uh, on sale? S- September. But let's let's not cheapen my comment here. Go and get the phone. <laughs> um, with uh, Julian Knight uh, before the Hoddle Street massacre, the build up and like researching researching that. I'm not familiar with that. Okay, uh, I think it was. Um, uh, Five or seven people shot. He shot a police helicopter. It was right. it was it was a pretty bad one. I think it was before the um, 
Oh, I'm not sure. It was, it was in Victoria, but uh, I'm not sure if it was before uh, the um, one in Tasmania. But things that built up where he just decided, I've, I've had enough. And mm. it's sort of, he, he joined the army. He was kicked out of the army. Uh, or an issue happened <coughs> happened there because he was charged with an assault. And then he came back home, but his, his bedroom wasn't set up anymore. Someone else had, you know, at home. And then he was going out. He wanted to go out that night and his car broke down. The battery was dead or whatever. And you could just see it just sort of escalate, yeah. escalate, escalate. And it was almost like, uh, yeah, if you put a timeline there, you'd go, okay, that happened. If we could have circumvented that, then that happened, then that happened. Shit, I've got nothing to live for. I'll show you. And he gets his firearm and, and goes out and starts uh, starts shooting people. Firearms put the idea into people's heads. I think in our brain, the car is transport. Firearms are Killing. to kill yeah. to kill people. So if someone's got uh, you know something going wrong in their head that they feel like killing people, they go to the firearm because that that's there. So that that would be the difference. And, and that one sounds so different to say like the uh, Las Vegas shooting. Yeah, have you seen the footage of that dude walking in with countless luggage cases mm. over days and days and days? That was the one shooting. From yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That was. Uh, I was watching this short little doco on it, and it's got yeah. all the security camera footage. So he turns yeah. up, he disappears with his car, comes yeah. back, more luggage, more luggage, yeah. comes back, more luggage, more, and he's got I don't know how many guns he ended up with and how much ammunition, but it was yeah. like oh, that, that a was, large arsenal. And how many there was. 70 people or something. Something crazy. It was crazy, crazy numbers. But one thing I I think, and the media have to play a part in this, and we all all do too, I'd love to see any situations like that. We never mention their name. Yeah, because I I think some of these lunatics, well, you're not paying attention to me. Look, you will now be on the front page of the paper. Just play the victims' names, talk Mm. about the victims, not talk about the the offender. That might be a way of... Do you think just a blanket ban on mentioning who this who this is yeah. because people they then want to know more i feel yeah, yeah. like that that would be my concern is uh, it's like well he they, they're not telling us who it is it's this guy and here's his photo and they share it you you're right so you'd have to give a description but let's not let that let's not be the martin bryant like the, yeah that type of thing so a name that we're we're all familiar with mm. let's let's take that away so it could be that weird dude that was down living in you know tasmania and he did this did that but not his name, so take take that out of uh, out of play. Yeah, and I I understand where you're going with that because it is a lot of these people have nothing to live for, or they are severely depressed people. They're yeah. sad. They don't they they want to have an impact yeah. somewhere, yeah. and they see their only impact being as being you know remembered as a horrible person. But they are remembered nonetheless. Yeah. And yeah, to remove that, maybe that takes a bit of power take, away take, from it. Take it, take it away. So yeah, you know, we'll never stop it completely, but uh, yeah, minimise it as much as we can. And you can't. You, you, crazy is is synonymous with humans. Yeah, like there's always going to be a crazy human. If if you know, you know, in Australia, there's 26 million people, or one in a million chance happens 26 times a day. Let's say. Yeah. Um, there's gonna be just insane people, and we've seen it with people running down the street and attacking people, and you know, assaulting people with Martin Bryant and. And I, I think a lot of listeners may not know the Martin Bryant story, but basically a mass shooting in Port Arthur in Tasmania. Yeah. And that was the, – the reaction was the Australian government basically took guns off people and made yeah. it very, very hard. Made, to, made it very, very hard. To, to get a, a yeah. firearm. And, I mean, you, you think to yourself, how many more people in Australia would have committed suicide if, if guns were available? 
to everyone. Because that's the big one in America too that people don't really talk about is yeah. how many people commit suicide via a firearm because well, it's quick. It's uh, Again, and it, it puts that idea in, in people's heads. I could end it so quickly because I've got a gun there. Yeah, because it's a weapon, a weapon that's going to take take your life. So I, I think that's, um, yeah, that comes into play as well. And, you know, we, we've had a lot of uh, suicides in, with police and uh, most of the ones I think of, they're all been with with guns, mm. that, uh, ones I've attended. They're, they're being gun-related. So it, it's there. You're thinking, well, okay, that's to kill. I want to take take my life. So, yeah, there's concerns there. Yeah, mate, I um, I want people to go out and get your book because it's insane to to think about this guy who you've seen in the in the media and, and you've seen that he's in courtrooms and all this type of stuff, but you're a great storyteller. And that's what people, until they read the book, until they see the show, yeah, they don't understand. And that is why you should go and check out Gary's book right now, which is available at all best-selling bookstores. <laughs> all best-selling bookstores. <laughs> it will be number one in Australia. That's what we need it's, to get uh, to. Yeah, it's coming out in September, I think. Father's Day. Good Father's Day. It's present. a great yeah. Father's Day. There present. you go. Now, can yeah. I ask you this? Are you happy to stick around for an extra fifteen minutes for the Patreon exclusive content? <laughs> we have this. We have this section okay. of the show called the sealed section, where yeah. we go into, we delve into things a little bit deeper. We talk about things that we probably shouldn't sealed talk sec- about. I can keep my clothes on. Well, mate, if there's the forty year old women watching this, <laughs> Gary's going to join OnlyFans on the sealed section. All right, so let's go over to the sealed section right now on uh, Patreon. Go and check it out. It costs a dollar a month. Go and support the podcast. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, go and buy Gary's book as well. Badness. It's available in all good bookstores and bad bookstores. Do yeah. bookstores even exist anymore? Can I, you get it on Amazon? You probably could. Go yeah. and buy it. All okay. right? I'll put a link up to it somewhere, anywhere. <laughs> Patreon, right now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.